Andrew Womack Ministries presents part five of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Praise the Lord. This is tape number 112 in our Life for Today Bible Commentary series. On this tape, we continue our teaching through the book of Ephesians. We're now in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, and this can be found on page 1114 of our printed materials. Of course, we're halfway through the book of Ephesians right now, and uh, you can basically break the book of Ephesians into two parts. You can uh, outline it this way just for purposes of helping understand it and you know get acquainted with the material there. But the first three chapters, Paul was actually imparting a lot of doctrinal, theological type of issues. And he established in the first chapter a lot of things about before the foundation of the world, how the Lord saw us and how we are complete in him. And all of these things prayed for a revelation of that towards the end of the first chapter. In the second chapter, he came and he was talking about, uh, you know, us being in Christ, how that at one time we were alienated from God. We were children of the devil by nature, but yet we've been changed. It was by grace through faith that we were saved. In the third chapter, he talks about the mystery that had been made known unto him, talking about a divine revelation, how the Gentiles and the Jews should all be one body in Christ, that this mystery had been hidden from other generations. So in these first three chapters, he was dealing with some real revelation issues. They were theological issues. And, of course, they all have practical applications. But he was stating the doctrinal positions. Then in chapter 4, beginning with chapter 4 and then 5 and 6, he starts making a lot of applications concerning the things that he had taught. And you can see this because right there in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. See, his statements that he's making now are tied into the previous statements. He had given all of these theological things, doctrinal positions, talking about, you know, the fullness of God being filled with all the fullness of God in chapter 3, verse 19, etc. And because of all of these things, now he is beginning to make practical application to their lives. And I tell you, this is really important. Because many times people tend to get caught up on one of these two sides. People are all into the practical. They don't want to learn anything theological. Matter of fact, if you use the word theology or doctrine, which the Bible uses the word doctrine, if you use that to some people, they just really dislike it. And they say, I don't want any of that. I just want something practical. I want to go out and, and touch people and deal with people where they are, and I don't want to learn these things. As a result, if you don't have your doctrine straight, then your practical application is going to be wrong. And you can see people doing that. You can see people going out and having a great zeal, but actually sometimes causing problems because they don't have their theology straightened out. They're out there saying wrong things, or possibly because their doctrine isn't straightened out. They may get things out of line in their own life and wind up as one of the casualties, you know, starting out good. But you need doctrine. You need to understand the Word of God. You need revelation of God's Word. But on the other hand, there's some people that get so much into studying and just learning about the Lord, but then they don't ever use it. And, you know, I've certainly seen this in our Bible college that we've started, that there's some people who are great students and they want to learn. But when it comes to going out and sharing their faith with someone else or making a practical application to their life, they just miss it. 
I've actually seen people before that, man, I preach my heart out and just share something that could change their life. And right after the service, they, they were listening. They were taking notes. It looked like they were right into it. But right after the service, they'll come up and ask me a question. And it's just like, you know, that was exactly what I was ministering on. And they missed the whole point. They don't have the ability to apply it to their personal life. Many people just are hearers of the word and not doers. And so that's certainly not good either. See, what we see here in the book of Ephesians is Paul is not only presenting doctrine, which he did in the first three chapters, but then he spends the next three chapters making applications and exhorting them towards unity and very, very practical things, even talking about master and slave, husband and wife, parent and child relationships in the sixth chapter. And so we find just very practical application of it. And I really believe that for a person to be well-rounded as a Christian, you need both of these things. You need to understand the Word of God, learn about God, renew your mind in that area, but you need the practical aspect, and it should be kind of like a seesaw or what many people call a teeter-totter. Instead of one end being way up and the other one way down, it should be balanced. It should be basically parallel to the ground. You know, you need to keep it in balance. There always needs to be application and Doctrine, understanding, it cannot be out of balance in either way. And so we see Paul doing that here in this book of Ephesians. You know, when Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, he asked the Lord two things. He said, who are you, Lord, Acts 9, 5, and then in verse 6, he says, Lord, what will you have me to do? So see, that's the way Paul started out. First of all, he wanted to know the Lord. That's like doctrine. God, who are you? Teach me. What do I need to know? But then the second question, what do you want me to do? See, there's some people saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? But they don't know the Lord, so they can't really represent him properly. That is going to limit what you can do for the Lord. And people who are just so consumed with doing instead of understanding who the Lord is will get out there, and they actually will be frustrated because the Lord cannot turn them loose. They would cause more problems than they would solve problems. But then on the other hand, there's some people that are just into knowing the Lord, and they don't ever get to where they share it with other people. And there's examples in the Word of God where Paul, you know, exhorted people to get out and recognize that they have a debt to other people. In, Revela in Romans chapter 1, he talked about that. I'm a debtor, not only to the Jews, but also to the barbarians and to the Greeks. And so we need to keep these things in balance, and that's what he's beginning to do here in the book of Ephesians. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Before we get any further in this, let me just draw a comparison here to Romans chapter 12. And in verse 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. This is a very par parallel passage of Scripture. The same phrases, same terminology is used. And if you were to take it in its context, it's coming from exactly the same slant. In the book of Romans, he had talked in Romans chapter 8 about the great goodness of God, the Spirit-filled life. He concluded it by saying, what could ever separate us from the love of God? In the ninth chapter of Romans, he talked about how that, you know, God was so good that it was by grace. It wasn't by your own works or genealogy. In the 10th chapter, he made the application and talking about that all you have to do is confess with your mouth. So basically, he had been talking about all of the goodness of God. And then he says in chapter 12, he says, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your body. Well, see, he's doing the same thing here. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. Therefore what? Well, in the previous chapter, 
He had been praying for a revelation of God's love, that they would understand the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth. And if you could get a revelation of this, then you will be filled with all the fullness of God. He was talking about the goodness of God, how much God had done for us, how he had united Jew and Gentile into one body in Christ. We are the fullness of him that filleth all things in all. This is such wonderful news. He's saying, because of these good things, I'm beseeching you to walk worthy. Now, the point that I'm trying to make in both of these instances is that, see, this is typical of the Apostle Paul. He motivated people by love. He used positive motivation instead of negative motivation. So much of what we see in the church today is negative motivation. People are trying to get a person to do good things, but they're doing it through negative motivation. Say, for instance, in the area of finances, they're saying, if you don't pay your tithes, you're cursed with a curse. God's angry at you. Well, you can motivate a person to give, but like it says over in 1 John 4:18, fear has torment. And that will actually, it might get some action out of a person, but it's actually going to torment them. It's laying a foundation for the relationship with the Lord to be built on fear and intimidation. And see, they'll actually be tormented. It won't bring the joy and the peace that God intended. When you motivate a person by love, love is somewhat of a harder motivation to come by because people relate easy to intimidation and fear, criticism, condemnation. That's the way that the world operates. And so people may react quicker. It might be easier. It doesn't take as much prayer and seeking the Lord to flow in criticism and condemnation as it does in love. So it's a lot harder, actually, to get it going. But love is a superior motivation. People will lay down their life for another person out of love. They'll never do that out of condemnation and things like that. You can actually get people to perform better motivated by love, but it takes more effort, and it takes the involvement of the Holy Spirit. God is love, and if the person isn't open to God, then you won't see them respond properly. So the point I'm making here is that Paul is saying it's because of the goodness of God, because of the mercies, because of this great love that he has for us. I'm beseeching you to walk worthy of him. This also is one of the key ways of staying out of legalism. You know, if you will evaluate the motive, why you are doing something, it'll help you to discern whether what you're doing is actually legalistic, whether it's works-oriented and not a faith, or if it's motivated by God's kind of love. When you're doing something because I love God so much, I want to read my Bible all day long. I just want to study it as much as I can. I love the Lord so much that I want to pray. I want to fast. I want to be with His people. I want to go to church because I just am pumped by it. I'm excited. I enjoy the things of God. See, if that's your motivation, well, then that is a good work, and it's something that will minister life to you, and all of those good things that you're doing will release positive benefits into your life. But another person could just read the Word constantly. They could pray. They could go to church. They could pay their tithes. They could be doing the right thing. But if they did it with the attitude of, oh, God, I've got to do this. I know I'm not doing enough. I need to do more. And you're trying to force yourself out of negative motivation. You know, I've got to do this or God will reject me. God won't answer my prayer. Nothing's going to work if I don't do that. If you're being motivated out of negative motivation, that's fear. And fear has torment. And you will wind up not enjoying the things of the Lord. And also that is not pleasing to God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please Him. And so you've got to operate in faith, not out of works, not out of performance. 
And this is a subtle difference because you can do the exact same things that somebody else is doing and yet do it with the wrong motive and it will profit you nothing. We've already dealt with that out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says if you aren't motivated by God's kind of love, all of your giving, your speaking in tongues, your prophecy, your gifts of healing, everything else are nothing. They profit you nothing if you're doing it for strife, if you're doing it to earn the favor of God, if you're doing it to build your own ego, your own uh, ministry. If you aren't motivated properly, your actions don't benefit you. And so Paul here is using the proper way of approaching these people. He's, he's beseeching them because of the positive, the good things, because of the wonderful things that God has done for us. He's beseeching these people to live holy for the Lord. And I tell you, this is, this is my heart for you, for myself, for all of us, is that we could change our motivation, that we could get to a place that instead of seeking God because we feel compelled, guilty, we feel condemned, God, I know I'm not doing enough, that we could just get to where we love God and, and everything that we do, do it cheerfully, out of a pure heart. I tell you, this can happen. It's not that we have to always be motivated by negative things. That's the way we've been trained, but we can retrain ourselves. You aren't going to hear very many people say these kind of things, but through the Word of God, you can retrain yourself. This is what Paul's doing. He's beseeching them by the good things. He said that you would walk worthy of the vocation. You know this worthy right here. Um, you need to spend a little time thinking about this because according to the dictionary, worthy can mean having worth, merit, or value. The second meaning is honorable or admirable, and the third meaning is deserving. Now, when you talk about being worthy, most people usually use this third meaning. That's the dominant meaning of this. People think, well, you're deserving. You're worthy of something. When this says that we should walk worthy of the vocation, none of us, before we're saved or after we're saved, I mean, even when we have God living on the inside of us, you are never going to be totally perfect. You're never going to be totally deserving. I think that you have to look at this word and interpret it according to this second definition that I gave where it means honorable or admirable. In other words, you can live in a way that honors the Lord. You can live in a way that would cause other people to admire the Lord and to admire what God has done in your life. But you could never live in a way that is totally worthy of anything God has ever done for you or called you to do. We, at our very best, are still far short of what God wants us to be. And, of course, Paul, right here in Ephesians, is preaching that grace. I spent quite a bit of time on that in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. And so Paul is not violating the things that he said about grace. I believe that he's using this word worthy in the sense of talking about uh, that we can honor the Lord with our life. So that's what he's talking about, that we would honor the Lord and the vocation that he has called us to. So in verse 1, he states what it is that he wants us to do. Because of the goodness of God, he's wanting us to live for God and honor the Lord, to glorify the Lord with our life. And here's the way you do it in verses 2 and 3. He tells us how you can walk worthy of this vocation. You do it, first of all, with all lowliness and meekness, long-suffering, and forbearing one another in love. So he mentions four things here, and the first thing that he talks about here is lowliness. That word means having a humble opinion of yourself. And in the King James, it was translated humility of mind, lowliness, lowliness of mind, humility, humbleness. So basically, this is just talking about walking in a way that where you recognize that God is supreme and not you. 
You are not the Lord. You are not the master of your life, but rather you live in a way where you constantly are exalting the Lord over your life. And again, this has to have practical application. There's some people that think, oh, well, I love the Lord and I'm committed to him. But the Lord said to treat others as you would have them to treat you. It says that when you uh, give something to someone, it's like you're giving it directly to the Lord. So there's some people, see, that have the theological, the doctrinal position, and they say, oh, yes, I know I'm supposed to love the Lord with all my heart, but then they treat people like scum, not recognizing that when we treat a person like that, we're treating the Lord that way. So, see, we need to live in a way where we exalt God, not only in a theological sense, in our personal relationship with Him, but when we deal with other people, we need to treat them as if it was the Lord we were dealing with, because that's what He says. If you do it to the least of these, you've done it unto me, whether it's positive or negative. So, see, we need to de deny ourselves and our own self-interest. There's some people that you don't care about. And you possibly would just let them go. Well, that is not honoring the Lord. That is not walking worthy of the vocation. If you want to walk worthy, if you want to bring honor to the Lord, then you need to treat other people the way that Jesus treated other people. Be merciful and kind unto them. Now, that doesn't mean that there's never a time to be stern, like if you're an employer or if you're a parent and rebuke your kids or deal with them. Jesus drove people out of the temple, but I don't believe that he totally lost his cool and you know, just was totally out of it and lost his temper. I believe he was doing it with a godly type of anger, but he was in control. And he was, there is a time to rebuke a person. There's a time that if you're an employer that you may have to call a person in and give them some kind of a reprimand or even fire them. But you can still do it in a way that it honors the Lord. Don't do it for your own selfish purpose. Do it because you really believe that you've prayed about it, and this is what's best for that person. It's what's best for your business. It's what you feel God would want you to do, and do it in a way that you try and bless that person and don't just dump on them. And, and see, this is real practical. Some people would not like me to do this. So let's just get back and talk about only what the Scripture's saying. But Paul, see, is beginning to make application. He says, now, after all these great things, I want you to start walking worthy of the Lord. And here's the way that you do it. First of all, you walk in humility, lowliness, and meekness. The word meekness means kind and gentle. And, you know, I've seen some people that honestly, uh, they didn't know what kind and gentle meant. They were just always tough and rough, and uh, now that they're born again, they still are just mean to people. And that is not what he's talking about here. That does not glorify the Lord. That doesn't honor the Lord. It doesn't bring admiration or glory unto the Lord. And so he says, if you want to glorify the Lord in your vocation, you're going to have to be gentle towards people. You know, in the instructions that Paul was giving to Timothy, he says that the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle towards all men, apt to teach in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves so that they could possibly be recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. And so one of the qualifications and command here is that a minister has to minister the word, and you need to be bold, you need to be authoritative, but at the same time you need to do it in meekness so that people will not just be totally turned off by your abrasive nature. And, you know, I've grown in this. I certainly hadn't arrived. I'm not complete, but I can see that, boy, when I first got started in the ministry, I'd fight at, a, uh, you know, the drop of a hat and drop my hat to get to fight. I mean, I was ready to argue with the person. And I have really mellowed out over 25 years, and I have now gotten to a place to where if it's going to be an argument, 
I wouldn't always avoid an argument. If I think a person, you know, is in a desperate situation and in their heart they may be really crying out, but their head is just so dominant in their life that they need somebody to answer their questions and just literally, you know, uh, talk them into a corner and get to their heart. If I thought that it would work that way, I might argue with the person. But I'd say 99 times out of 100, I'm not going to argue with the person. I'm not going to force it. I mean, if a person isn't ready, if they aren't receiving, I'm not going to try and use the Word of God like a club and beat them over the head. I'll share with people in meekness, gentleness, and kindness. And I've, I've just learned that God's Word is to build up and to edify. It is not a club. You know, I actually had a man one time. I was talking to someone, and like I said, this is 20-something years ago, back when I first got started, and somebody said something wrong, similar to, uh, I don't know for sure what it was, but it was something like they said, well, you know, this tickles me to death, or I'm scared to death. And I got on their case and said, man, you're confessing negative. You shouldn't say things. You shouldn't be talking death. And, you know, I was missing the whole point. They weren't sincere. It was a cliche. Now, I still don't believe that's the best way to talk, but... I got on their case and started using the Word of God like a club. And a friend of mine came up to me, and he was very gentle. And he said, Andrew, he says, God's Word is not a club. It is not to beat people with. And, you know, that really ministered to me. I can still remember that. I can still remember him saying that to me 20-something years later. God spoke through him. And, see, I wasn't honoring the Lord. I wasn't walking worthy of the vocation. I guarantee you the people I talked to with that attitude didn't bring them closer to the Lord. I might have... You know, planted a seed in some people. I may have countered their doctrine, and years down the road, something may have come out of it. But I honestly can't look back and see anybody just repenting and turning because of that. See, you need to operate in love. You need to operate in humility, not promoting yourself and not flaunting yourself, not exalting your own desires, but doing what you believe the Lord wants you to. You need to be kind and gentle unto people. The next thing that he ministers here is, he says that you need to be long-suffering. And the word long-suffering means patient endurance. I believe that you could use the word patience here. As a matter of fact, this same Greek word was translated patience in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, and James 5:10. And so this is talking about patience. And did you know that when you are impatient, when you don't have your faith working over a prolonged period of time, you just go in spurts and you believe for just a moment. And if it doesn't come immediately, then you fall away. Did you know that that is really not a good testimony? It is not bringing honor and admiration, glory to the Lord. It is not walking worthy of your vocation. I tell you, one of the things that you need in the Christian life is patience. Or another way that you could say this is you need endurance. You need consistency. You know, this word, like I said, means patient endurance. And the word endurance is a word that we use when we're talking about like a distance runner. You know, the Christian life is not a 50-yard dash. It's a marathon. And the person who gets out there and just gives it all they've got for 50 yards they're going to faint at 100 yards, and they won't be able to finish the race, and I guarantee you that is not a good testimony. I just heard a thing on the news today. They were talking about the Iditarod, I think is the way you say it, this uh, dog sled race in Alaska, and the man who won it, I think, is a seven-time winner, and uh, they asked him how he won, and he said that he held his dogs back the entire race and never did let them run full out. He said everybody else just exhausted all of their resources the first few days. He said he never did put his foot all the way to the floor, you know, in the symbolism 
of like having a car and putting the gas pedal all the way down. He said he held him back. In other words, what he's saying is he paced himself. There was endurance. It was control. See, that's what patience is. A person who is not patient is a person who may have great fervor and zeal, but they aren't able to portion it out over a period of time. They just expend everything. They go in spurts. They may seek God for a weekend and fast and pray, but they aren't going to live like that on a consistent basis. So when he's talking about long-suffering here, he's talking about not necessarily just putting up with people, but that's the next word where it talks about forbearance. But long-suffering is talking about patience, consistency over a prolonged period of time. And I really feel that this is one of the qualities of maturity in a Christian's life. And it brings a lot of glory to the Lord. This really does make you walk worthy of the vocation. It makes you honor the Lord. It brings honor and glory to the Lord when you're living that way. And so this is something that we need to shoot for. Of course, over in James chapter 1, it says that if you let patience have her perfect work, you will be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And so patience is a very powerful virtue that should be operating in our life. And then the next thing he mentions is forbearing one another in love. And the word forbearance here means tolerance, restraint, and patience. Again, there's a little bit of an overlap, but this means tolerant and and restraint, especially in the midst of when somebody has come against you or something you say that you are going to forbear with them. You aren't going to release your wrath. You aren't going to give them what they deserve. And operating in these type of relationships where you're giving people mercy instead of judgment. Boy, this is something that really does bring glory to the Lord. This same word, the same Greek word that was translated forbearance here also means shall I suffer. Uh, It's translated that way twice. It it was translated suffer. It says that I should bear. We suffer it. Uh, Ye could bear and indeed bear with me etc. All of these things are talking about putting up with people, putting up with their mistakes, putting up with things. As you begin to start walking in love instead of anger and having a chip on your shoulder and you start forbearing people, you get to where you can love people in spite of their hang-ups. I tell you, that brings glory to the Lord, and I believe that that's a sign of maturity. Another thing that I've dealt with a lot in our Bible college here, I've seen some people that come in here, and I mean, they just are quick to criticize anything and everything. And I'm not talking about just me. I'm not saying this from a selfish standpoint. I've seen some of our guest speakers come in or one of our teachers just say one thing wrong, and a person will throw out every positive thing that they've said and jump on that one thing and just have zero tolerance, zero forbearance. And most of the time they will say they're doing it in the name of non-compromise. They aren't compromising. They're totally committed to the Lord. Well, I tell you, if you really get the Lord's heart, the Lord places unity above nearly everything else. That is one of the highest priorities. And for a person who will sow discord and strife and criticism and hurt people's feelings and offend them and do it in the name of the Lord saying, I'm not compromising, You have chosen to fight over the wrong issue. The number one issue, the thing you ought to be looking for, is a way to build bridges and to to bring people together, not drive them apart. Boy, that is a total wrong thing. And to me, that is a great sign of immaturity. When I see somebody who's just critical and gravitates towards the negative, one of these people that every time they go into a town, they always feel the oppression instead of the good. I mean, they can pick up on the demonic in a second, but they couldn't recognize the Holy Ghost if he was to come up and introduce himself to them. I mean, grab their hand and shake it, and they would miss it because they feel the oppression and stuff. 
Boy, the people that gravitate towards the negative like that, that is a very immature type person. That might cause quite a bit of uh, criticism or response to that, but that's what I really believe. See, in the third verse, he says, you go on endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's still talking about how to walk worthy of this vocation. And one of the things you do to walk worthy is, is that you seek to walk in unity with your brothers and sisters. In the 13th chapter of the book of John, this is Jesus speaking the night before his crucifixion. And he told his disciples, he says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. He did not say that it's going to be because you refuse to compromise and you got this militant attitude and, boy, you're going to fight anybody who criticizes you. And if anybody steps out of line, you're going to get on their case. That's how they'll know that you're a Christian. No, he says that the thing that will be the greatest testimony to the fact that Christ is in you is the fact that you walk in love one with another. That is the greatest testimony to the power of God operating in a person. Unity. That ought to be where our focus is. And yet so many people have uh, made issues out of the length of hair, the length of skirts, whether you wear gold or this, whether you baptize and dip them or dunk them or sprinkle them. You know, we've made issues out of all of these things and we've become contentious. And in the process, many times we have just been like a tank running smooth over people, hurting them and offending them, turning them away from the Lord by all of the strife and the division that they see. That is not bringing honor and glory to the Lord. That is not walking worthy of your vocation. So he's saying here that as you seek to walk worthy of the vocation, how do you do it? You do it with lowliness, with meekness, long-suffering, forbearing, also endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now this word endeavor here, I believe, is important because it means to make a conscientious or concerted effort towards a given end, an earnest attempt to exert oneself, to make it one's duty. Now there's a difference between endeavoring and accomplishing. In other words... The body of Christ is not in a lot of unity today. There is a lot of division in the body of Christ. Many people have nothing to do with other portions of the body of Christ. That's not the way it should be. We shouldn't be just totally complacent towards this. But at the same time, we need to recognize it took thousands of years for the walls and the divisions that have happened in the body of Christ to be built up. You probably aren't going to solve it overnight. You aren't going to solve it in a day or a week. And so you need to remember this word. You need to endeavor. That needs to be a goal. It needs to be something you strive towards. It needs to be a priority in your life. But at the same time, don't make it such an issue that you are going to literally lose all of your faith, be discouraged, defeated, depressed if you don't see it come to pass, because I don't think it's going to happen instantaneously. You know, we have seen a lot of unity come in the body of Christ since the 1960s. Now, I'm not saying this because of research. I'm saying, and the reason I'm uh, using 1960s is because 68 is when I really got turned on to the Lord. And that was kind of the beginnings of the charismatic move. And I can just tell you from my own perspective, my own history, that, man, the denominations were way apart. And, I, I mean, I made the top ten list in Arlington, Texas, of places that were of the devil because I believed in the baptism of the Holy Ghost and spoke in tongues. People listed me as of the devil. There were people, I mean, the violence, the anger, the bitterness. There was tremendous outrage and opposition to the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the choruses that we sang. The way that we did just so many things were so offensive to people. And yet, you know, I can say 
that nearly 30 years later, 20 to 30 years after these times, now you can go into most denominational churches and you'll hear the same choruses sung that at one time they opposed as being nursery rhymes and it was so offensive. Now they're singing songs about letting the Spirit have control and freedom and liberty. We're seeing an impact. The denominational church was impacted by what is commonly called the charismatic movement. And in this charismatic move, there was a lot of things wrong. I'm not saying that everything there was perfect, but I am saying that there was a a bridging of the gap. Catholics and Baptists began to worship together that before wouldn't ever have done it. Episcopalians, Lutherans, and on and on. Denominational barriers have blurred to a large degree. Now, they're still there. But today, you won't hear most denominational people calling a person of another denomination of the devil or saying that they can't be saved. And that was fairly prevalent before this. So the point that I'm making is there has been a great move to unite people. And as far as we've come, it's good, but we've still got a million miles to go to be like what the Lord intended. And I dealt with this very clearly over in 1 Corinthians chapter uh 1 and verse 10. We talked about the degree of unity. That's what all the book of 1 Corinthians was written about. We're a far cry from that, but we've made progress. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is to say that ever since the Lord has touched my life, I have endeavored to bring unity, to keep the unity of the body. I've endeavored to make that a priority, and I have seen a lot of success. But I guarantee you, if if this was just everything to me, and if I had to have it happen overnight, I would have quit and give up a long time ago because as much progress as we've made, we've got a long ways to go. So I'm saying that this, I believe this word endeavoring is important. It's showing that this is something that you ought to make a conscientious effort to accomplish. It ought to be a goal. It ought to be a priority. But at the same time, don't take all the responsibility and don't think that you're going to be the one that brings it all to pass. It's not that simple of an issue. It runs very deep. And you just do your part. That's what he's talking about. Notice that it says endeavoring to keep the unity. It didn't say endeavor to create unity. The truth is that in Christ, we already are one. In the spirit realm, Our spirit is united to the Lord and therefore united to each other. We're all one body in Christ. And when we stand before the Lord and when all of our carnality gets wiped out of the way, when our selfishness and stuff gets changed, when our soul is changed so that it reflects perfection the same way that our spirit does, you're going to find out that we will live in total, absolute perfection, unity throughout all eternity. That's already within us. But our souls are so dominant and so much in control that we don't see a lot of it visible and manifest. Now, the reason I'm saying this is to say that sometimes people look at things only from the external. They look on the outside, and if you looked at it from the outside, you might see very small pockets of unity and ways that we cooperate, but if you just really got critical, you could see so many negative things that are not the way God intended it to be in the body And you could think, man, there is no unity. We've got to do something. We've got to go out and make this happen. I don't really believe that that's the approach. What we've got to do is keep the unity. The truth is that in our heart, every born-again Christian has this drive on the inside of them. Now, they may have been taught differently. They may have 
rejected this and deadened themselves to it so that it's very deep. And with some people, it may look like it's not there. But the truth is, in your spirit, if you're truly born again, you have a desire to reach out to other people that have that same spirit of God. There is a camaraderie. There is a union. There is a brotherhood. There's a fellowship. There is a unity that's on the inside of us. It's a drive. Truly born again people want to walk in love. That is, that's the nature of God. God is love. And if you receive Christianity, if it's a genuine experience, it's going to make you want to love other people. Now, you may have a lot of things that keep you from living that out and actually become an experience, but there is that drive on the inside. And I believe that understanding that this is the nature of people will help us to, uh, it'll give us confidence that, you know, it's not just something that we're trying to do. Within every person, the Holy Ghost is also drawing them to it. So we're kind of cooperating with the Holy Ghost. That encourages me. So I think it's important here to recognize that you're to endeavor to keep what God has already put in our heart. It just needs to get out of our heart. It needs to be done uh, in the outside the same way that it's already accomplished on the inside. In the same way as we're going to live throughout all eternity in perfect unity, we need to pray that scripture over in Matthew 6.10, the Lord's Prayer, where it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, there's going to be perfect unity. We need to pray that that unity come here on the earth. The whole focus here is on unity in the third verse. And you'll find, uh, if you compare this with 1 Corinthians, especially that verse I was talking about, 1 Corinthians 1.10, and my footnotes that I've got over there, you'll find out that disunity or lack of unity among believers was just unacceptable to the Apostle Paul. When he was talking about walking worthy of the Lord, one of the things he emphasized here is unity. Walking in unity and keeping uh, the bond of unity in the spirit and in the bond of peace. That's the way that he did it. I mean, and so in the next few verses, he goes on and lists why this unity is what should be. Why is it that we should be in unity? Because the truth is, in verse 4, it says that we are all part of one body. We are part of one spirit. We have been given one hope. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. In other words, we have so many things in common. We are all part of the body of Christ. There isn't multiple bodies of Christ. We all have the spirit of Christ, the spirit, the Holy Spirit within us. There aren't multiple spirits. There isn't a spirit that I've got and a spirit that you've got. We've all got the exact same spirit. We all have one hope of our calling, our Lord. There's just one Lord. It's not like you have a different God than I have. We all have the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, etc. Since we share all of these things in common, well then, praise God, we ought to be in unity. We've got actually more to be unified on than we have to divide us. And yet it just amazes me how people gravitate towards these things. While I'm at this, let me just throw in something here. I've had a number of letters in just the last week where people have been listening to this guy on the radio who has a ministry of exposing error. I'm not going to mention names. Now, this guy mentions names all the time. He's mentioned mine and other people's names. But I'm not against the guy. It's not the person I'm against. I'm against this practice. I believe that it's all right to speak out against abuse and error as long as you don't make it a personal thing and come out as a vendetta against people. But this guy, he loves to quote names and discredit and tell people these people are of the devil. 
But anyway, he's very critical. He's always jumping on things. Uh, I can guarantee you in my ministry, he doesn't know me. He's listened to a portion of some tape somewhere and found something he didn't like. But he doesn't know what my ministry is about. There's no way that he could evaluate every minister that uh, he's spoken out against and, and all of these kind of things. But the point that I was getting at is that um, I have had a number of letters come this last week, people who have been partners of mine for 10 years or more, people that have just been changed, and they were trying to be nice about this, saying, boy, your your ministry has just touched my life. It's changed my life. Some of them talked about healings, about marriages being put together, good things that have happened through the word that I've taught. But then uh, this guy said something, and, and um, they want to uh, have me verify my position on a certain issue, which to me, again, the issue isn't the problem. It isn't the, it's not the uh, main point. You know, what I believe about one individual thing. The point that I'm getting at is, how could they receive over 10, 15 years and just have God minister to them in 100 areas, and then if they find one thing they disagree with me on, whether I'm right or they're right, it doesn't matter. Just one thing is going to instantly have them turn away. They tell me that, boy, if you don't answer this thing right, I'll never give to you again. I'll never get your tapes. I'm sending everything back. I've actually had people do that, send every tape back. And yet at one time they were ministered to. Great things happened in their life, and they're willing to throw it all away because, you know, of one thing that we differ on. Even if I was wrong, I'm not saying that I was. I don't believe I am. But even if I was wrong, can you see that that is not Walking in love, that is not walking in unity. That is gravitating. These people will take one thing wrong out of a hundred, and they'll forget the 99 good things, and they'll go for the one wrong thing. You know, that attitude is so ungodly. It is so anti what the Word teaches that right there I don't have to go any further as to who's right or who's wrong on the issue. That's not even the point. Whether the doctrine is right or not isn't the point. It's this thing that you would just throw a person away and use them as disposable, you know, because they just said one thing wrong sometime. I actually had a guy one time, a pastor, who didn't like my teaching. He was upset with me to start with. Somebody in his church brought him one of my tapes, and he had an attitude. He was critical. He didn't like me, and so he was going to listen to the tape to see if he could find anything wrong. Well, I had something for him. And I said something. I probably quoted a hundred scriptures on that tape, and I quoted one as the wrong chapter and verse. I got the scripture correct. I just gave the wrong reference for it. And so he came back to the uh, church member who gave him this tape, and he says, I told you, this guy's of the devil because he gave the wrong reference for this scripture. Now, I was wrong. <laughs> but, I mean, can you understand the point that I'm making? Boy, a person that would sit there and throw, listen to a hundred scriptures and never get a, one of the good things that I said and just focus on the fact that I gave a wrong uh, reference for a passage of scripture. Boy, something is seriously wrong there. And yet that attitude is so prevalent. They're on radio. They're promoting it. People are buying into it. They're getting negative and looking at that. I'm not telling you that you just have to put your head in the sand and not pay attention to sometime, anytime, I mean, anytime that a person makes a mistake, but I'm saying that we need to have priorities, and according to what Paul is saying here, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace ought to be a high priority. Do you know, I have gotten to a place where I can disagree with people. I hear people say things all the time that I don't agree with, and yet I know what their heart is. I can hear their heart. 
Their heart is saying the right things. They may not be saying it exactly the right way. But I've just gotten to where, man, I can go look beyond that. Now, a person who would just come out and attack the Lord and come out and say things like Jesus isn't Christ, and I'm not going to tolerate those kind of things. There are issues that are worth fighting over. But I tell you, some of these little nitpicking things and uh, things, it, people are just totally missing this point about the unity of the Spirit. Paul is making a big point out of this. So he says that there's only one body. We don't have different bodies of Christ. There are different church groups just because of location, but the truth is people don't always acknowledge this, and in their actions and in their thoughts, they may be living differently, but the truth is that if you are a born-again believer, you are united with every other born-again believer in one body in Christ. You may not believe in having males having long hair. Somebody else might have hair down their back. You might reject them and hate them over that and think they can't be saved. But if they truly are a believer, you are one with them. You are in the same body. It's just like having, you know, fingers and hands and elbows and arms and feet. You are a part of that one body. You may have a different function. There are some churches that are militant, and boy, they want to go out there and evangelize everybody and get right in your face and pass out tracts to people as they come out of the prostitute houses. And, I mean, be confrontative. Others pick at abortion clinics and stuff. Others want to get in and, you know, maybe start pregnancy centers to deal with it from a positive side. And we may dislike the other people's approach, but the truth is that if you're truly born again, you are a part of that person. And I believe from God's perspective, there's a place for all of those type of things. There's a place for those who want to just be praisers and just love God because God can use you. While we're at it, I just might as well share this. This doesn't usually go down very well with pastors. But I believe that sometimes the way people move around from church to church within the same city, I associate, of course, a lot with ministers. And ministers will talk about these people as church hoppers. And they usually say it very critically. They'll Instead of the word uh, charismatic, many times they'll use the word cruisomatic, referring to the fact that they just go wherever the newest thing is and stuff like that. Well, now, there is no doubt that there's some people who do this, and they have no commitment to anybody. They are totally free spirits. They don't want anybody to have authority over them. They aren't submitted. They have a rebellious attitude. There is no doubt that there are some situations that that is just 100% totally wrong. But I believe that there are sometimes, in fact many times, that it's the Lord that has to move people from church to church. Because churches tend to develop personalities. You will get a militant church that is just out here, you know, confrontational. You'll get a missions church. You'll get a church that's into healing the brokenhearted. You'll get a church that's into discipleship. You'll get a church that's into praise and worship and pageantry. You'll get a church that's into, you know, children's issues. You'll get a church that's into political issues. The truth is that we really need all of those things. It's just like a body. A body has hands, feet, all kinds of different functions. We are one body. And if all you do is go to a church that's a militant church, Now, that's good, and I guarantee everybody needs to be exposed to that so that we can be challenged and that we can be, you know, confronted, that we've got a responsibility, and we need to be out there taking the battle to the devil. 
Everybody needs that. But I tell you what, a person who is only around that and doesn't ever learn about relationship and just sitting in the presence of the Lord and about the goodness of God, a person that doesn't ever learn about how to disciple others, they're just out there trying to get them born again, but they don't care about discipleship, that's out of balance. And so from God's standpoint, how do you get the people in the body of Christ to mature if churches tend to only take one segment? They develop personalities, and they uh, aren't completely well-rounded. They don't have multiple gifts in a church. Instead, they just have an evangelist, and that's the only minister in the church. Well, then he can give a lot of good to the people, but he's going to be deficient in some areas. So from God's standpoint, I believe that God many times has to move his people from church to church because they need that slant of the evangelist. But they also need the ministry of the teacher. They also need the ministry of the prophet. They also need to understand praise and worship and the benefit of how important that could be. And so since churches tend to just take one thing and zero up on it, many times God has to move his people around from place to place. Now, see, pastors don't like that because they just think, no, this person ought to be committed to me. But God is more committed to maturing and building up your people than he is establishing your ministry. And if we aren't doing what we have to do over in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3, the Lord told those pastors of that church, says, if you don't repent, if you don't do these things, he says, I'll move your candlestick, which is talking about the people. The Lord right there has scriptural precedent to say he would remove the candlestick and send them somewhere else. And I see that many times people have to go from church to church because they need what this church is offering and then what that one is offering. They need all of these things. Now, it would be wonderful if the churches would begin to start trying to fill all of these areas. And the larger churches, many of them have this concept, and they really supplement the ministry of the pastor of the church by bringing in people that have different type of giftings, and they bring in guest speakers and There's many churches that are making efforts to attempt this. And I'm saying that, man, you ought to get committed and plugged in as much as you can. But sometimes you have to move around to be able to get what you need so that you can become a well-rounded, balanced Christian. But the point I'm making here is, see, there's just one body. God doesn't look at it as, well, this is your neighborhood, and this is this church, and that's another church over there. He sees us all as one body, and I don't think that the Lord minds as much the flow between churches. Now, again, I know that there's abuses, and there's some people that the reason they flow from place to place is because they never will submit and listen to the Word of God. And when it gets hot, they just go to someplace else so that they avoid commitment. And I'm aware that that happens. I'm only presenting one side of this, but I'm saying that there are sometimes that it's actually a good thing because we are one body, and God is just trying to build up the body. We have one spirit within us. It's talking about the Holy Ghost. We are called in one hope. Of our calling. I believe that this hope right here is talking about what uh, Paul called the blessed hope, and that's uh, talking about the resurrection of our body. And uh, he mentioned that in a number of different places. And so this is talking about that all of us have the same hope of being resurrected. We aren't going to be resurrected different from each other. We're all going to have glorified bodies. We're going to live forever with the Lord in eternity. And so we've got the same hope of our calling. In verse 5, it says we have one Lord, and this word Lord here is the word kurios. It's uh, the word, it was used for many different things. It referred to just, you know, like what we would call Mr. or Sir, a term of respect. But the dominant way that it was used in the New Testament is definitely talking about divinity, the supreme, almighty God. 
And I've got a footnote on this over in Luke chapter 1, verse 43. It's footnote number 3. And it talks about that Jesus had this term, kurios, the Greek word kurios, or however you should properly say that, uh, referring to the supreme God applied to him. And I think there was 26 times it was used in that first chapter of Luke. And in every one of them, it was definitely talking about God the Father, Jehovah God, except one time that it applied this towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by seeing that, you can see that Jesus is called our Lord. God the Father is called our Lord. And yet this scripture here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5 says there's only one Lord. So is this contradictory? No, it's just another verification that the Trinity, what is called in Christian circles the doctrine of the Trinity, is a true statement that God the Father is God, but Jesus is also God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. When did God ever become flesh? When Jesus was born. So Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is called God over in Acts chapter 5. And yet there's only one Lord. This Greek word one, here's the Greek word hes, H-E-I-S. And it means a singular one to the exclusion of another. You know, there are sometimes that you can use the word one to refer to that like we are one in purpose, in desire, in unity. But it doesn't imply sameness. It just means that there are comparisons. There are likenesses. But this word one means a singular one to the exclusion of another. In other words, it's talking about identical. God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Ghost are not just united in purpose. They aren't three gods. It is one God manifest in three persons called a trinity. And I can't understand that, and I can't even explain it, but I can certainly see it in the Word of God. And I've got some footnotes listed here that will go into that. It also says that we have one faith. And I tell you, this is really important when you're discussing unity, because sometimes you'll hear people say things like, what faith are you? Uh, And then people will say, well, I'm of the Baptist faith, or I'm of the Catholic faith, or I'm of an Episcopal faith, as if God established different ways. You'll even hear some people like uh, cults, this Reverend Sung Young Moon, the Unification Church. They say that it really doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter if you're a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Hare Krishna, Hare Lam, or a Christian. Just as long as you believe something, as long as you believe that there is a supreme God, that there are many paths, there are many ways unto God. And so you, it just as long as you have faith in God, it doesn't matter what path you take. All of the paths converge and come back to God. That's basically the doctrine of the unification, the unity church, and some other things like that. But that is totally contrary to what God's Word teaches. Jesus said himself in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, not a way, the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus made it very clear that there was no alternative. There is no other way. There aren't multiple faiths. There isn't these different religious faiths and that we all basically are the same in the sight of God. No, there's only one true faith. Now, it is true that people who have put faith in the Lord are scattered among Baptist, Catholic, Episcopal, uh, everything else. All of the denominations have born-again people in them. Not everybody in there is truly born again. Many of them are just religious. But people who have this one faith may be in some of these divisions, some of these different groups. And they may even be involved in some of the bickering and the anger and the strife that separates and divides. 
But that's all in the flesh. In the spirit, the truth is that we all have the same faith. If you got born again, you didn't get born again with just human faith. You had to use a supernatural, God-given faith. And so that faith came from the Lord. It's God's faith. I just taught on that over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. I'd refer you back to that. You you use God's supernatural faith to get born again. So therefore, you have the exact same faith as every other born-again believer. And so you can't say that I'm of this faith and you're of that faith. And well, you know, it's a personal matter. I, this is the way I do it. It's a very personal thing. It's just however I want to do it. No, it's God's faith. It's not up to you to direct it. It's not your faith. It's not a Methodist faith. It's not a Presbyterian faith. It's God's faith, and you have to administer it the way that God wants it administered. Now, there's no compromise on the subject of salvation, but you may disagree. You may have been diverted. You may have got into just religious tradition in some area. Well, that's not going to affect your eternal redemption. It won't affect the fact that you are still a part of the body of Christ. It may cause you some problems in the flesh and give you a lot of problems. You may keep from enjoying your salvation, but if you truly are born again, you have that one faith that came from God, and we are united in that. That's the reason that we should walk in unity, because we've all got the same faith. It's God's faith, and God would want to operate it through all of us in the same way. It says that there is one baptism, and yet, if you're familiar with the scripture over in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it talks about the doctrines of baptisms, plural. It talks about multiple baptisms. So how do you harmonize this? Well, you need to recognize that there are multiple baptisms. For instance, over in 1 Corinthians 12:13, it talks about a baptism by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. This takes place immediately when a person gets born again. When they confess Jesus as their Lord, they are immediately put into the body of Christ. It's automatic. It happens to every single person who is born again. You may not have felt it, perceived it, understood it, but it happened. And then there's a water baptism that happens after you get born again, and you're already a part of the body of Christ. Then you go through this ceremony where you physically get dipped in water. Some people differ. Some people sprinkle. Some people hold them under. Others hold them under until they just really repent. And I'm not here to teach on baptism, but that's a sacrament. It should happen to every born-again believer. Not every believer follows through with that. It doesn't mean that you aren't saved. But it does. it is a different baptism from what happens immediately upon salvation. And then John the Baptist talked about a baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. Of course, Jesus spoke of that and told his disciples to tarry for that, and so that's baptism of the Holy Spirit. And uh, then Jesus spoke of a baptism of suffering that he would go through. So right there are four different baptisms. I believe that there's others in the Word of God that you could refer to. The point that I'm making is Hebrews chapter 6 and other scriptures show that there are definitely multiple baptisms. And yet here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5 when it says that there is one baptism, I believe that this has to be referring to that there is only one baptism into the body of Christ. In other words, the word baptism to us has become a religious term. It literally means to dip or immerse. And it could be used of a lot of things. It's just talking about being overwhelmed, being totally consumed, totally enveloped in is a way that you could say it. And when you get born again, you get placed into, overwhelmed, enveloped into the body of Christ. 
And I believe that that's what he's talking about. There aren't, you aren't bapt, some people aren't baptized into the body of Christ, and other people baptized into the Holy Ghost, and other people baptized into the Father, and other people into something else. We're all put into one body. There is one baptism into this one body, and that's what he's talking about. He's not denying that there is a water baptism and that there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit, but literally he's just talking about that there's only one operation of the Holy Ghost that puts us all into the body of Christ. And this is another reason for unity. In verse 6, he says, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There are not multiple gods. There is only one true God. Every other God is just a conception of man. They are demon gods. They aren't true and living gods. You know, in India, they had 350 million gods that they worshipped in India. But the truth is, there's only one true God. And since he is the father of us all, we have a lot to be in unity and have uh, common ground over. He is above all and through all and in you all. Of course, this is limited to talking about those who have accepted him and are been born again. He does live inside of everyone who's been born again. In verse 7 it says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So in verses 2 through 6, especially verses 4 through 6, he's been talking about unity and talking about all of the common things we have. But then in verse 7 he comes back and he says, But there is diversity. We're all one, but there is diversity according to the measure of the gift of Christ. In other words, this goes right back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it talks about that there's only one Lord, but there's many different administrations. There's one Spirit that divides these gifts severally to each person as he will. And over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it uses this example of a body and talks about just like our body has many different members, you know, yet it's all one body. Your whole body isn't one big eye. If it was, you couldn't go anywhere. You need feet to carry you. If your whole body was just an eye, not only could you not go anywhere, but you couldn't do anything. You need a hand to grab and to do things. But if your whole body was just a hand, well, then you couldn't see anything. You'd be groping in the dark. Man, you'd wear your hands out trying to walk on them. See, you have different parts. There are some people who are an evangelist. There are some people who are pastors, some who are teachers, some who are apostles, some are prophets. And they have different functions. They do different things. But we shouldn't be operating independent. We need to recognize our interdependence upon each other. We need to recognize that we only have a part of the ministry of Jesus and that we cannot totally represent God by ourselves. We need the other parts of the body of Christ, and we need to function together. So see here, as he's talking about unity, he brings up this difference, the diversity talking about that we all have different gifts according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And, but this isn't counteracting or, or you know, undermining what he had just said. It's actually explaining. Some people say, but I'm so different than this person. They claim to be a Christian, but all they want to do is just worship and praise the Lord and intercede and pray. And, man, I don't care a thing about that. I want to get out there and get my hands on somebody and tell them about Jesus and get them born again. Well, you just need to recognize that both of you are a part of the same Lord. You're a part of the same body. You've got the same spirit. You've got the same baptism into the body of Christ. You've just got different functions in the body of Christ. And you need to understand this and not be challenged, threatened, insecure over people who are different. And recognize it. Man, God needs those kind of people. You know, I am very secure in what God called me to do to teach. 
And I, you know, I could get off if I let myself into thinking that teaching is the most important gift out of everything because I'm so passionate about it. It's what my vision is. It's what God's called me to do. But I've learned through the Word and through experience that as much as I love teaching, that if all we had was teachers, if we didn't have people that came along and motivated and challenged and rebuked us and did some other things that are not necessarily the dominant focus of a teacher, if we didn't have that, I guarantee you the whole body of Christ would suffer greatly. We need these other things. I've come to appreciate my gift and what God's called me to do, but I realize that it is not the fullness of the body of Christ, that I need people who come along and are just totally motivational. They may not, what they're teaching may not even be 100% accurate. They may be butchering things doctrinally, but boy, they're building the fire under people and getting people to go. I need that kind of person in the body of Christ to compliment me in the teaching that I'm giving. These are the points that he's bringing up right here. In verse 8, he says, Wherefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, this is a quotation from Psalms chapter 68 and verse 18. I'm not going to have enough time probably on this tape to cover all of these passages of Scripture. But this really does bring up a lot of issues. In the seventh verse, he had just talked about that, you know, after talking about unity, he says, but there is diversity. We all have different gifts according to the way that God has dealt them out through Christ. And then he quotes this Old Testament passage from Psalms to verify that when he ascended up on high, talking about when he was resurrected, he led captivity captive. You know, there's many people that talk about this captivity captive, and they use this word to talk about that he basically paraded the demonic forces that he had conquered in front of other people and made a show of them, etc. And there may be some validity to that, but to me what this is talking about, it's talking about that he took the Old Testament saints and he brought them out of what is called Sheol in the uh, Hebrew in the Old Testament, and he led them into paradise or into heaven, into the very presence of God. Now, if some of you haven't heard this concept before, that may have just gone right over your head. But I've got some footnotes on this. I've got them all listed here. You can look them up. But in the Old Testament, the saints went down into the lower parts of the earth. There's many scriptures that talk about this. And they talk about the uh, spirit of a man upon death going down into the parts of the earth. It talks about uh, in Luke chapter 15 when Jesus gave that parable about the rich man and Lazarus, that they that the Lazarus went into Abraham's bosom. And actually what happened was Lazarus and this rich man, the rich man was damned and he went into hell. Lazarus went into Abraham's bosom, which was a place of blessing. It's where the Old Testament saints went. But it was all in the same region called Sheol. And this region of Sheol, that's the Hebrew word, it was divided into two parts. One was called hell, and the other part was Abraham's bosom, or paradise. And so this is the way it was up until the time of Christ. Because until Jesus made his atonement, and actually reconcile man back unto God, God had a place for these Old Testament saints. And it spared them from going into hell where the unbelievers went, but they weren't able to enter right into the very presence of God because the atonement hadn't been made. So when Jesus died, what he did, he went down into these regions of Sheol, the part called Abraham's bosom, 
And he took these people. They were Old Testament saints, Moses, Elijah, these type of people. And he took them and actually brought them out of Sheol and brought them right into heaven, into the very presence of God. And so anyway, what happened there when he did this, I believe that was taking captivity captive. In other words, these people were saints. They weren't suffering the punishment of hell, but they weren't really in the very presence of God. They were in a blessed state, but until Christ's atonement was made, they couldn't enter into the very presence of God. And so in that sense, they were captive. And when Jesus died, he went down there and took these captives. He took the captives captive and led them to the very presence of God. I believe that that's what this is referring to. When he ascended up on high, when he came out of this area called Sheol, he took Abraham's bosom with him, or this place called paradise, all of the place where the departed saints had gone in the Old Testament. He took them captive right into the very presence of God. And I believe that that's what this is speaking of. Now Abraham's bosom doesn't exist any longer. A place called paradise doesn't exist any longer. It's now called heaven. And that's where the saints are. When a believer dies, they go directly into heaven. All of the unbelievers still go into the very center of the earth into a place that we call hell. And when the uh, second return of the Lord comes, and when he creates a new heaven and a new earth, the saints aren't going to actually be living in heaven anymore. They're going to be living here on the earth, is what it says. There's going to be a new earth, and the, the city, New Jerusalem, is going to come down, and we will live and reign forever with the Lord here on the earth. And instead of hell existing, the Scripture doesn't teach that there will be a hell in the center of the earth the way that there is now, but instead he's going to create a lake of fire where the devil and the beast and the false prophet will go and everyone who worship them, talking about all the unbelievers. And there will be some place, it doesn't appear like it will be in the center of the earth, it will be some place separate where this lake of fire will be. So the saints throughout all eternity, after the new heaven and new earth, will actually live on the earth, a new earth, in the new Jerusalem with the Lord instead of in heaven. And the unbelievers will no longer be in hell, but rather they will be in this lake of fire. So anyway, this is what all this is referring to in verse 8. He says, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And the gifts that he's talking about right here, it goes on and explains down in the 11th verse, it's talking about the gift of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. But before he gets to explaining what these gifts are, he goes into a parenthetical phrase here in verses 9 and 10. And it says, Now he that ascended, and of course this is talking about Jesus, before he ascended back up into heaven, it says, What is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Now remember that this is a parenthetical phrase. To get the real point that he's making, you can jump directly from verse 8 to verse 11. He's just saying that Jesus led captivity captive and gave gifts unto man. Then in verse 11, he tells you what these gifts are. But just this parenthetical phrase is very important because it gives us some information that really is some of the clearest that we have in the Bible about what happened in between the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection and ascension back to the Father. This says that he actually descended into the lower parts of the earth. 
which this terminology, I've got some references here that you can look up the references on this. This is used at least three times in the Old Testament, and it refers to like people going to hell. It refers to people going into the grave, etc. I believe that it's literally talking about this area called Sheol, and Jesus went down there. When he told the man who was on the cross with him, the thief who was being crucified with him, he the thief said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, this day shall you be with me in paradise. Paradise is not heaven. Paradise was this place called Abraham's bosom, the blessed portion of Sheol, the uh, lower parts of the earth, the inner part of the earth. And uh, so Jesus there, when he said, this day shall you be with me in paradise, he was making reference to that when he died, that this man went into Abraham's bosom and Jesus was there. That day, he went into that portion called Abraham's bosom. Now, this raises another question that I'm hesitant to get into because this is one of those areas that I was mentioning earlier about people. You know, this has become a real deal about did Jesus die spiritually? Did Jesus go into hell? Well, now, there is, I don't believe any question. Even everybody that I've ever heard would say that Jesus went into the lower parts of the earth they would refer to this area called Sheol, and everybody would believe that he went there. But some people believe that he only went to paradise, or Abraham's bosom, into the blessed portion of it. Other people teach that Jesus actually went into hell, the part where the departed spirits of the lost went, the damned, and that he was actually cursed there, and he had the wrath of Satan put on him, and judgment came on him. And the reason that they believe this is going back to words that we use like vicarious sufferings of Jesus. That's a theological term. The the um, The idea is expressed many places in Scripture that Jesus became what we were so that we could become what he is. And a Scripture that uh, is used often on this is Second Corinthians 5.21. It says, For God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, if we really are going to be redeemed from sin, then there didn't have to be just a token sacrifice made, but Jesus literally had to become sin and be offered and sacrificed. And so that's what a lot of people teach. Now, when you start saying things like that, there is a whole group of people that come and raise up in arms and go to saying, man, you're saying that Jesus then couldn't have been God because God cannot die God cannot be contaminated by sin. If Jesus was God and he became sin, then the whole world, the universe, would have self-destruct, and they go into this kind of reasoning. And honestly, I'm just telling you up front that I don't know exactly where I stand on all of this. And some people will crucify me over that and probably never listen to me again and miss all of the good that God's got to do through me. And uh, I'm aware of it, but I'm just being honest with you. I'm trying not to skirt the issue here. I can actually see both sides of the story. Uh, I think this, one of the ways that you evaluate truth, Jesus said this, he says, you can tell a tree by the fruit it produces. In other words, you can tell truth by the way it works in people's lives. What fruit is it bringing forth? I can say this, that the people who are being criticized and said that they are of the devil because they are teaching that Jesus died spiritually, I've seen the fruit of many of these people, and they are seeing thousands, tens of thousands of people led to the Lord. 
I have been places and seen people by the thousands come to me and talk about how that these people have influenced their life and how that there are people healed and saved and baptized in the Holy Ghost and marriages put together and just tremendous victory. I've seen the fruit of what many of these self-proclaimed policemen, spiritual policemen, have said was of the devil. They're saying that these people are cults and that they're of the devil and that they're advocating heresy and they're calling them heretics. I've seen the fruit of these people, and it's not bad. So I can say right there that that right there tells me that if nothing else, these heresy hunters are at least going overboard to say that anybody who says something like what they disagree with are of the devil and that God can't use them. I can just guarantee you 100% that that's wrong because I've seen the fruit, and to a large degree, I'm the fruit of some of those people. So I know that that's not right. On the other hand... I have listened to some of this, and I don't agree with everything that's taught. I certainly don't agree with people talking about their explanation of how these things came to pass. And anyway, I'm not wanting to get off on this because it's an hour or two-hour issue, and I hadn't got but about ten minutes left on this tape. But the point that I'm trying to get at is that these scriptures says that Jesus went into the lower parts of the earth. Whether this means he only went to Sheol and dealt with the... Uh, saints and took them captive and and obliterated paradise and brought them to heaven. If that's all it's talking about, if that's what it means, I can accept that. That's not a problem with me. On the other hand, if it means that Jesus actually went into hell, and I believe that there's some precedent for that because he came out with the keys of hell and of death. How did he get them if he didn't go there? I mean, did he send a messenger and they brought him to him? Or uh, did Satan come to to, uh, Abraham's bosom and bring them to him? Or... It would just be logical to think that Jesus went there. And he did become sin for us, is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, and went to hell. Now, this see, this is where I would disagree with some things. Some people teach that for three days and three nights he suffered in hell and went through terrible torment. Well, I don't believe that that happened because he told that thief on the cross, he said, this day you shall be with me in paradise. So, you know, he died somewhere around, I think it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, or maybe it was noon, in the middle of the day. And the Jewish calendar, you know, the day was over at sunset, so there was only about five or six hours left on that day. And he said, this day you shall be with me in paradise. So he was in paradise before that day was up. So at the very most, he could have stayed there maybe five or six hours. I personally believe that if Jesus, the sinless Son of God, took the sins of the world upon him and went to hell and entered into hell. And if he suffered one millisecond of punishment and separation from God, which he did, he said on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God did turn and uh, give him the same judgment that we receive. If he suffered one millisecond of that because he was God manifest in the flesh, because he was holy and pure, then his suffering equal more than all of the suffering that all mankind would have had to pay for their sins throughout all eternity. And I believe that God would have been just in the moment he hit hell and suffered any of that punishment, any separation from God, God would have been just in saying that's it. That satisfies it. That His sacrifice is greater than all of the sins of all mankind. Uh, can you understand what I'm saying? Like, for instance, if... a uh, If a dog gave his life for another dog, 
it would only be a one-for-one one exchange because one dog is just worth one dog. But if a person was to lay down their life and sacrifice themselves for a dog, well, then a person is worth more than all of the dogs on the face of the earth. Can you see that? Jesus was worth more than all of the people that had ever lived because he was God manifest in the flesh. So if he did go to hell and if he did suffer, then I believe in within a millisecond that God could have said, that's enough. Jesus could have come out of there with the keys of death and of hell and have gone back to Abraham's bosom, taken all of the captives captive and led them right into the very presence of God. But these scriptures here are saying definitely that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. And that's not talking about that he just came to earth from heaven, but it's talking about after his death, after his crucifixion, he went into this area in the center of the earth that is called Sheol in the Hebrew, and he dealt with Satan. He took the keys of of hell and of death, and he came out. He came to Abraham's bosom, or paradise, took all of the captives that were there, and he ascended back up into heaven, and he filled all things. I think it's the NIV that says that he filled the entire universe with himself. Praise God. Boy, there's a lot in that. And again, some people might say, well, boy, that's heresy for you to say this. I've listened to, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm just going to say this so that nobody will send me all of their books and all their materials. I've listened to a lot of people. I won't mention their names again, but I've read their books. I've listened to the people who are the leaders of the heresy hunters. And they come out against, did Jesus die spiritually? I've read the articles on the, did Jesus die spiritually cult? And I've read all of this stuff. And none of it is totally convincing because they make assumptions. What they do is say anybody who believes this is saying that Jesus isn't God because God can't die. And then they go on and establish through Scripture that Jesus is God. So therefore, if you say this, you're challenging the deity of Jesus. You can't even be a Christian. Well, now, I agree with their conclusions, but I disagree with their assumption. To say that Jesus bore our sins and literally went to hell and suffered, whether it was for a second or a minute or whatever, that does not mean that Jesus was not God. And some people say, well, well, then what about the scriptures that God is eternal? He cannot die. How could you say this? Well, how about the scriptures that God cannot be contained by all of the universe? It's not even big enough to handle him. That's what Samuel said at the dedication of the temple. And yet... God became man and dwelt among us. God was in Jesus. Now, if you wanted to follow that same reasoning, then you could prove that Jesus wasn't truly God because God cannot be contained in a small space. God could not really have become a man because man is finite and God is infinite. See, now you could follow that same reasoning and you could actually come up against the deity of Christ. And, of course, those people would say, well, no. Well, see, there's some things you just have to accept. I don't know how God put himself in the, in the form of a man and limited himself to man. I can't understand that. And I can't logically tell you about how it all happened that Jesus became sin for us and died for our sins. But I don't believe it's as simple as some people have made it to, to where he didn't suffer anything except just on the cross. I suffered more than physical. I suffered more than just physical pain and anguish and things on the cross. I suffered more than just rejection from people and ridicule and scorn. I suffered separation from God. And if Jesus became my substitute and bore my punishment, if part of my punishment was spiritual death and separation from God, I could certainly understand how Jesus could have done that. And somebody says, but then he couldn't have been God. Well, I disagree with that assumption. I believe that God somehow or another could do this.
I don't know how any of it happened. I don't know how Jesus became a man. I don't know how he died. I don't know how he bore our sins. I don't understand it all. And just because I may not say it perfectly or somebody else hadn't said it perfectly does not mean that it's heresy. The point that I'm trying to say is that Jesus paid what I needed to pay. And everybody would agree with that. Now, the technicalities of how he did it, we'll let God straighten all of our theology out when we get to heaven. But but let me just say this, and I know that the majority of people listening to my tapes here on this Life for Today are probably not those heresy hunters, and you are probably not the critical type, and you probably aren't like that, because that's certainly not my ministry, and I, I would imagine that most of you uh, are not like that, if you've been drawn to my ministry and bear witness with it and are a part of it. But I just want to say that I know that there is a lot of criticism out there, and I think it's doing a lot of damage in the body. God never appointed anybody to be a Holy Ghost policeman. God never made anybody with a ministry of exposing error. There is no scriptural precedent for that. Now, there is a precedent for a minister to expose error at times, not in a way that's vindictive towards people, not in a way where you just become the judge and jury and damn them to hell and, and base everything on your little peanut brain and don't imagine that anybody could know or or operate outside of your realm of understanding. There is no precedent for that. But there is a time to say something, but it's not all of the time. Any person who would build their entire ministry on exposing error is in error themselves. There is no such thing. If you were to take away these, what I'm calling the heresy hunters, the people that just go around exposing all error, and if you were to take away their criticism of others, and everything they said that was in relation to others, and just took their message that they're preaching, they don't have one. They don't preach the gospel. They don't promote anything. The only thing they promote is the criticism of other people. And I can guarantee you that is not a valid ministry. God didn't call anybody to the ministry of criticism, the ministry of correction. There's times that all of us have to criticize error. There's times that all of us have to correct things that are wrong. But that is not the focus of the ministry. If you were to take away their criticism, their rejection, their uh, putting down of other people and just take their message, you could put it into a thimble, thimble and it would be empty. They aren't saying anything themselves. They aren't for anything. They're just against something. That is not a godly principle. And like I was saying earlier, you can judge a tree by its fruit. I've seen the fruit of the people who have been condemned, and it's good. It may not be perfect. But it's good enough to show me that these are true born-again believers and they're doing a good job. And somebody who has never led one-tenth as many people to the Lord as the people he's criticizing shouldn't say anything. He, got some, he has no business. When he's not impacting anybody, he's sitting there criticizing these people that are doing a better job than him. Now, that's wrong. So I've seen the fruit of the people who are being criticized, and it's good. It may not be perfect, but it's good. And I've also seen the fruit of those who succumb to these heresy hunters. And I've seen people that at one time were happy and joyful and having a grand time and had the joy and the peace of the Lord flowing in them and the anointing of the Spirit. I've seen people become cynical and critical and bitter and angry and drop out of church and separate themselves from other people and get to where they're mean and angry. And I've seen them grow hard, and it's, it's not good. The fruit of that is bad. And so that right there is the main issue to me. What's it going to produce? You may have an argument, and you may be convinced that your argument is right, but look at the fruit. What's it doing? You know, I've got some people that in the area of politics, they've got real strong opinions on that the church 
in America should not have to register with the government, that this is violating the real Constitution. And they may have an issue. They may be accurate. But you know what? They've made such an issue out of that that they have fought. They've, their churches have uh, have gone down in numbers. I've got one guy in particular that, boy, his life is on the skids because of this issue. And I talked at him uh, with him about it at length. If nothing else, he ought to look at the fruit of his decisions. It's made him bitter. It's made him angry. It's hurt him. It's cost him his influence. He's not reaching people and on and on and on. If nothing else, man, wise up. It's not working. If it's not working, you might look for something that is because when you preach the gospel and you just get on with the things of God, it bears fruit and it produces. We need to be that sharp to look at things that way. So anyway, when we continue our teaching next time, we'll continue talking about the gifts that God gave to the church here in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 11. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.